The New Frontiers in Functional Medicine podcast is proudly sponsored by Designs for Health. Designs for Health is a family-owned professional brand offered exclusively to healthcare professionals and their patients. For over 25 years, they have been the healthcare professional's trusted source for research-backed nutritional products. Their guiding philosophy, science first, is demonstrated by a commitment to research-driven products, synergistic formulations, and meaningful quantities of therapeutic ingredients. Find them at www.designsforhealth.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Tom Seyfried, who has really done uh, remarkable research um, looking at cancer uh, and uh, an a, a wildly alternative approach to addressing it, uh, as we're going to discuss shortly uh, from the uh, mainstream focus. But let me just give you some background on Dr. Seyfried. Uh, he's the professor of he's a professor of biology at Boston College. He received his PhD in genetics and biochemistry from the University of Illinois in 1976. He did undergraduate work at the University of New England, where he received where he recently received the Distinguished Alumni Achievement Award. He also holds a master's degree in genetics from Illinois State University uh, in Normal, Illinois. Uh, Dr. Seyfried served with distinction in the United States Army 1st Cavalry Division during the Vietnam War and received numerous medals and commendations. He was a postdoc fellow at the Department of Neurology at Yale University School of Medicine and then served on faculty as assistant professor in neurology. Other awards and honors have come from such diverse organizations as the American Oil Chemist Society, National Institutes of Health, the American Society for Neurochemistry, and the Ketogenic Diet Special Interest Group of the American Epilepsy Society. Dr. Seyfried previously served as Chair of Scientific Advisory Committee for the National Tay-Sachs and Allied Diseases Association. He presently serves on several editorial boards, including those for nutrition and metabolism, neurochemical research, the Journal of Lipid Research, the a and the ASN Neuro, where he's senior editor. Uh, Dr. Seyfried has over 170 peer-reviewed publications. He's also author of the uh, seminal book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease on the Origin, Management, and Prevention of Cancer, and that's published by Wiley Press. You can access his peer-reviewed publications on PubMed. Just a little background in my relationship with Tom, I had the honor of getting to actually shadow you, <laughs> Tom, I think about two years now. I was up at, at your lab in Boston College, and you were so generous in allowing me to uh, spend half the day pinging you with questions. And, you know, you've consistently been really generous with um, our community, the functional medicine community, and, and actually lay people and, you know, people suffering with cancer and uh, sharing your knowledge. And, you know, I'm just thrilled to be with you uh, again today. Well, thank you, Kara. It's, uh, it's a pleasure, uh, again, for me to have the opportunity to discuss these issues with you. Yeah, they're important and obviously extremely timely. So let's just jump right in and talk about the origin of cancer. You know, what is it in your... Well, yeah, well, you know, we've done a lot of work uh, on this area, um, mostly in, in reevaluating a lot of the older uh, research on, mm -hmm. on where cancer cells come from. And it becomes clear when you piece together all of these uh, various observations uh, from Otto Warburg, um, Bovary, and um, 
uh, Ross Kelly and colleagues from the older from the older literature and a variety of other newer observations from um, um, several various scientists. It becomes clear that the origin of the disease begins with some sort of disruption of oxidative phosphorylation, which takes place primarily in the mitochondria of the cell. Mm-hmm. So the, this this little organelle uh, that that evolved as a symbiotic uh, interaction uh, with another type of cell in this uh, early primitive uh, time on the planet. So there, there has been a symbiotic relationship between the 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 organism that that formed the nucleus and the organism that formed the mitochondria, and um, and what happens then is that during the formation of cancer, this uh, energy forming organelle becomes dysfunctional in many different ways, which then forces this cell to rely uh, on the most primitive uh, ancient form of energy, which is this glycolytic pathway. Right. So basically, what this cell is doing is simply falling back on an ancient pathway for proliferation uh, and survival. And, and during that period of time on the planet, before the symbiotic relationship occurred between these cells, all of the organisms, the cellular organisms, were rapidly proliferating, and they would proliferate uncontrollably, um, unregulated, uh, as long as, as, long as uh, metabolic fuels were present in the environment. And when mm-hmm. the fuels ran out, the cells simply died. So um, the cancer cell is very much similar to this primitive kind of cell, and it will grow as fast as it can as long as fuels are available. Um, So targeting the fuels that these cells use to grow seems like a very logical and uh, effective way to uh, shut down the problem. Right, right. And we'll we'll circle back to that um, and talk a little bit more um, about how you're doing that targeting. But uh, so based on this, would you say cancer is a metabolic disease or you know, as is commonly thought, a genetic disease? Well, I mean, it's clear to me, um, you know, because I am a geneticist uh, and was, I guess you can say, indoctrinated um, like almost everyone else in the field because everyone is told that cancer is a genetic disease. Right. And people say that because, I mean, if you look at the nuclear genome yeah. uh, from the genomic studies and the, the cancer genome atlas and you find you find every kind of genetic damage uh, in mm-hmm. the nucleus uh, of a tumor cell. So so this is somatic mutations. These are mutations that arise within the nucleus in somatic cells rather than in germline cells. And yes, when you look at at the majority, not every cancer, but the majority of cancers have all kinds of 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 defects in the in the DNA, the nuclear DNA. And then you combine that with the fact that we know we have some inherited cancers like those of the Leaf-Raumeni syndrome and those of the BRCA1 and 2 genes that right. cause breast cancer. And they are germline mutations in specific genes. So when you look at the rare inherited forms together with all the genetic damage and the somatic forms, you know, people are led to believe um, um, that this is a genetic disease. But then when you begin to think more carefully about this, you know, where do these mutations, these somatic mutations come from? Right. And they come from they come from reactive oxygen species, mm-hmm. which are mutagenic and carcinogenic. And where do the reactive oxygen species come from? They come from the damage to the respiration. So provocative agents in the environment yeah. damage the respiration of the cell. The cell makes 
mutagenic molecules, these reactive oxygen species, which then cause the somatic mutations seen in the nucleus, which are largely random. Um, there's no rhyme or reason to the kinds of mutations that you see in the nucleus. And this is, this is what one would expect, that these are downstream epiphenomena. And, and so when you see all these yes. mutations and you think this is the problem, you focus on that. Right. And that, in my mind, is the reason why we've made so little progress in managing the disease, because we're focusing on that, fo on that part of the problem. And then when you think, what kind of strategies are we using to manage cancer? It's basically trying to break and destroy DNA even more yeah. to stop the tumor cells from growing. So it's a nuclear-centric attack on the problem. And most of those attacks, radiation and these toxic chemos, um, are designed to try to, to, to try to stop DNA replication by interfering with DNA, DNA synthesis. So this leads to tremendous toxicity and all these issues that you have associated, and it's not really targeting the real problem, right. which is, you know, how are these cells growing? Where are they getting their energy from? And it's these fermentable fuels, and yes. very few studies are, very few people are focusing on that. Listen, I just want to back up to, um, you threw out this idea of the provocative agents initiating um, production of, you know, excess re reactive oxygen species. And, I mean, I think, you know, in my mind, you know, many, many, many different things can be these provocative agents. I mean, are there, what, what comes to your mind? Well, I mean, we've already defined and this is the this is the the oncogenic paradox that was first discussed by Albert St. Georgi, the Nobel laureate who who received his awards for vitamin C. Um, he he called it the paradox, and 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 the paradox. Um, uh, Mukherjee, uh, Sid Mukherjee, in his book The Emperor of All Mal Maladies. Yes. If you look on page two eighty five and three hundred three, he is struggling in in his book with this paradox. And the paradox is, well, how do you explain? Uh, how do you get cancer from so many different agents through a common pathophysiological mechanism? Yeah. And that's the paradox. So we know, for example, uh, carbon tetrachloride, there's, there's a number of chemical carcinogens that are in the environment that have been documented as being cancer-causing agents. So, so what, they, what these chemical carcinogens do is they, take up, they go right to the mitochondria and they blow out the energy metabolism gradually of that organelle forcing the cell into a fermentation metabolism and leading to a chronic inflammatory condition, which, which is an origin of cancer. We also know many viruses like hepatitis C, papillomavirus, right. the, the HIV viruses. Okay, they all are associated with cancer. Now, how do you link a carcinogen that causes cancer with a virus that causes cancer? And you find out the viruses are all replicating or damaging the, rep, the, the energy of the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So they're doing the same thing the carcinogens are doing, but through a different, a different, uh, a different agent, but doing the same, uh, the same, uh, uh, causing the same problem. So then you take x-rays, and you say, people know x-rays cause cancer. Mm -hmm. That's why they avoid x-rays. Yeah. What x-rays do? They damage re respiration. They damage the mitochondria. So then you look at chronic inflammation. What is, we know that if we have chronic inflammatory foci, in some mm -hmm. populations of cells in our body, this is a significant risk factor for the onset of cancer. Inflammation damages respiration, causes the same, the same problem. Okay, now we're going to BRCA1 and we're going to Leaf-Rauhmeni. The Leaf-Rauhmeni encodes the P53 gene, the so-called guardian of the genome. Yes. This protein is part of the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. 
So that inherited mutation is essentially producing cancer through the same mechanism that x-rays and all these other things are producing cancer. It's knocking out the respiration. So any of these provocative agents, and age, we know the cancer is better or increases with the age of a person. Right. Now, age just damages respiration. It's a wear and tear system issue on the body. Things start breaking down. And the respiration starts breaking down. And if you combine that with, with a, 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 a small amount of hypoxia inflammation, you're going to increase your risk for cancer. Type 2 diabetes and obesity creates a systemic inflammatory condition in the body, contributing a risk factor to the development of cancer through damage to the respiration. Every one of these provocative agents will lead in, or increase the risk for cancer in certain populations of cells, in individuals that are, that are uh, uh, prone to this, and you get cancer from a variety of different reasons. But the common pathophysiological mechanism is damage to the respiration. This is e- extremely clear. Yes. And it generates the ROS. So, so we, then we create all these mutations in, indirectly, which are random, mm-hmm. randomness, which mm-hmm. is exactly what you would expect through this pathophysiological mechanism. Yeah. So the, 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 the issue here is that the entire field, almost, almost the entire field, the pharmaceutical and the academic industries and the cancer industries, they're all focusing on downstream epiphenomena. Yes. So they're building therapies for effects, not causes. And what do you think the results are going to be? Very poor control of metastatic cancers. Right. We can talk about metastasis. So it's very clear why we're making very little progress on this disease, and it's very hard to get people to accept what I'm saying. Because to accept what I'm saying means you're going to have to change the strategy by which you, by which you uh, address this disease dramatically different from what we're doing today. Right, right. Um, I know we're diverging. I've got so many other basic questions. We're going to circle back to this, but you're saying so much, you know, so many really interesting things. Um, you, you know, what I mean, what would you say fundamentally is the issue with 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 switching strategy when you know the what we're doing is so limited in its efficacy, where we're putting you know but, endless amounts yeah, of dollars? Well, okay, so okay, so the strategy of 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 the strategy that everyone you know, to kill cancer cells. All right, so this is the strategy. You're trying to develop therapies that are going to stop uh, the proliferation of these cells. That who have the signature phenotype of dysregulated cell growth. All right, so this is the the target. So so tar- So how do you do this? Mm. You can use very toxic chemicals like we're using today, and radiation, and even the immunotherapies, the checkpoint inhibitors, are still based on the fact that there's mutations in the tumor cells that are blocking the ability of the immune cells to kill them. It's still based on the gene theory of cancer. Right. So so. You know, and some of these are, work well for a few people, but not for most people, and they're horrifically expensive, and they can be associated with also adverse, unwanted adverse effects. So, that, so that's one, that strategy, the gene theory strategy, has, is, is focusing on killing tumor cells based on, on the understanding that cancer is a genetic disease. The, on the other hand, if cancer is a mitochondrial metabolic disease, we know then that these cells are surviving on, on metabolites that can be fermented mm-hmm. and not respired. So, therefore, if we take away the fuels that they use to ferment, which is this primitive pathways, then they should die also, but with far less toxicity. Yes. If you know how to transition 
the body away from fermentable fuels to, say, respiratory fuels like ketones. So the body can burn ketones, but the tumor cells have great difficulty because you need good respiration to burn ketones. And it's been shown in numerous papers under structural, metabolic, all kinds of, the mitochondria and tumor cells are dysfunctional in one way or another. So the strategy of, of, of using metabolic therapies is going to be far less toxic and mm-hmm. potentially as effective or even more effective than the toxic drug and radiation strategies that we're using today. It's just that a lot of people don't understand it. A lot of people think it's a genetic disease. If you think it's a genetic disease, then you're not focusing on these other issues, which are the real and the essence of the problem. Right, right. Um, all right, so I want to just, just I, you, had, you had mentioned uh, metastasis, and just in this whole context, how does metastasis relate to the metabolic theory of cancer? Well, this is a very interesting point because the metastatic cell, the cell that actually spreads through your body and becomes the most uh, difficult adversary to control, is derived from the immune cells themselves, macrophages and dendritic cells, but mostly macrophages. Okay, what, what is the macrophage? The macrophage is a monocyte. It's part of the immune system. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, uh, um, it's like neutrophils and these kinds of things. They're, they're, these are, are the guard dog of our body. If you have a bacterial infection or a wound or a cut, these macrophages will go in and kill bacteria. They'll facilitate the reconstruction of the tissue architecture in the process of wound healing. And they patrol through the body. We have different populations of these. We have residents. Every tissue in our body yes. has a resident population of macrophages because if there's a local disturbance, in the microenvironment, these macrophages will take care of it. Cells uh, die for various reasons, wear and tear. When the cell dies, the macrophage is there to remove the corpse. Mm-hmm. All right? And then you have monocytes per- patrolling in our bloodstream so that if we have a cut or an infection, these guys become activated and they'll home, home directly into the, into the wounding area to facilitate the, the killing of any bacteria and facilitate wound healing. Right. Okay, when the energy metabolism of these kinds of cells becomes uh, abnormal, yeah. and they begin to ferment. Now, let me say, these cells can ferment naturally because yeah. they've, they've evolved to live in hypoxic environments. If you have a cut and your blood vessels are broken, there's no oxygen in there. Okay, the bacteria thrive in that environment, but the macrophages in our body protect their normal respiration and can function in a hypoxic environment to kill the bacteria, mm-hmm. right? But when these cells have compromised respiration, they enter into the fermentation process, locked into that process. Now, these cells are already genetically programmed to spread and enter into tissues. Mm-hmm. So what the metastatic cell is then, it's one of our own immune cells that has gone rogue, right. and they proliferate uncontrollably, and they're already genetically programmed to enter into and exit tissues. So you're dealing, and they don't respond to anti-angiogenic therapies. These mm-hmm. guys live in hypoxic environment. Right. This is why the anti-angiogenic arm of the cancer industry has been such an abysmal failure right. in, trying to, in trying to target tumors. We're spending billions of dollars on anti-angiogenic therapies like Avastin and these things. They're not going to work. Yeah. They're not going to work because the very cell that they're trying to kill lives in hypoxic environments. So when you start to look at cancer as a mitochondrial metabolic disease and you understand the different kinds of cells that, are, that we're dealing with, then most of the stuff that we're using makes no sense. Right. And that's the reason why we're having such a big problem. So you've got to know the adversary. We've defined this, we and others. We know what the adversaries are. So we know what we have to do to corral these cells and kill them by taking away the fuels they're using to ferment. And I think we can do this. I think it's, it's a, a, a very achievable problem. So the metastatic cell is one of our own cells. 
they, and you say, oh, these, they, 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 they inhibit the, you know, these checkpoint inhibitors, all of our natural killer T cells. These, ang- these activated MACs naturally suppress T cell activation. And if, and, if the, and if you suppress them by, by restricting some calories, they will eat T cells to get energy. So, so you, we have to know the, the adversary. We have to know the biology of what we're dealing with. And unfortunately, the majority of people in the cancer field don't understand this. Right. And this is the reason that explains the, 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 the lack of major progress. So, I, I, I mean, we recognize these things, and this is what we're going at. We're going after what we understand. All right. Well, I want to talk about that then. Um, so just so going after the fuel, I mean, going back, going, just really drilling down to these... Um, you know these 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 fundamental lesions here. Let's talk about glucose driving tumor cell growth. Well, we know um, glucose drives tumors, uh, many tumors, and yes. there's some tumors that don't 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 use it. They right. use glutamine. So, um, but there are hmm. many many tumors that are locked into a, uh, and we see this by PET scanning. Um, they you can see the, the 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 areas of tumor light up because they're glucose transporters are upregulated. There's other reasons for this too, but that's that's one of the main reasons. Um, they throw out tremendous lactic acid, so we know that, and that it creates acidification mm-hmm. of the microenvironment, leading to uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, like a wound, yes. uh, an unhealed wound, which brings in normal macrophages, by the way, normal cells of our immune system, that, that spew out growth uh, factors, cytokines and growth factors, that are supposed to facilitate the fibroblast to help heal the wound, but at the same time, they're, 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 these growth factors are stimulating these neoplastic cells to grow faster. So it's an escalating situation. The, the cells are doing what they're programmed to do, but in the wrong context. Right. They're, they're, so, so, and this is now fueling greater amounts of glucose. And then what happens is uh, uh, you get into this fermentation profile, which upregulates the pathways for, for fermentation, glycolytic fermentation, and you create an environment that's uh, ideally suited for using glucose and creating a, an escalating situation for further further growth, and that's another pathway that's u- that glucose is used is the pentose phosphate pathway, mm-hmm. which produces glutathione through the, through the availability of NADPH. So these tumor cells, even though they make more radicals, uh, mm-hmm. they are. Tumor cells have, have higher degree of oxygen-free radicals because they have damaged respiration. So why, they not, why don't they die from producing these ROS? Because they have such a high antioxidant capacity from both the use of, of, of glucose and glutamine together will protect them from their own ROS. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and also fuels their fermentation growth. So, so you, you have to realize what this cell is doing it, and, and uh, why is it surviving? You know, you throw all these chemicals at it, you say, oh, it's so resistant. You never take, you, it's resistant because you're, not, you're providing it with all the fuels it needs to survive in a hypoxic environment. Right. This, is not, this is not a complicated situation. Now, if you're looking at gene mutations that are changing, saying all these mutations are making it resistant, that's nonsense. Those gene mutations have very little to do with this. So this is a pure metabolic phenomenon. Right. And if, you don't, if people don't understand that, we're going to still uh, wallow in this lack of progress. Right, 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 right. The gene mutations are definitely secondary. It's, you, so you describe it basically as sort of, I mean, our immune system perceives this as a wound and gets into to attempt to clean up and actually you know, in its effort, becomes part of the problem. Uh, yes. And, and one of the things, where do the metastatic cells come from? Well, this incipient cancers. Now, some of these metastatic cells can happen very early in, in the disease, and we don't even know where they come from. 
And this is called uh, CUP, Cancer of Unknown Primary. And, and CUP cancer will kill anywhere from, uh, from 5 to 7% of cancer patients. They don't know where the tumor cells are coming from, but they're just metastasizing everywhere. They have a lot of characteristics in common with macrophages. Now, under, under other conditions where we have pro protracted uh, chronic inflammatory condition, where our macrophages are coming in to heal the wound, right. and the wound is not being healed but is increased. Now, the macrophages are very fusogenic cells. To help he wound healing, macrophages naturally fuse with each other. This sometimes is referred to as multinucleated giant cells. Mm -hmm. And you see this mm -hmm. in a lot of wounded areas, right, in, the, in, in tissue pathology. But then if the wound doesn't heal and the tumor cells, uh, and you have these non, you have neoplastic cells, cells that are called tumor cells, uh, they grow, they're dysregulated, but they're not metastatic. They can't metastasize because they don't, they're not derived from macrophages. But they still can form a very aggressive growing tumor, but it's not metastatic. And, you, you know, those tumors are very easy to cure because the surgeon can come in and just pluck them right out. There's a tumor. It's not metastatic but, but, uh, because it's, it hasn't yet fused. Now, the MACs come in, and, and, and in that environment can sometimes fuse with these uh, stem cells, rapidly proliferating tumor stem cells, and acquire the abnormal mitochondria from the proliferating stem cells, which mm. gradually dilute out their mitochondria, and now these macrophages become neoplastic by acquiring the abnormal mitochondria from the, from right. the stem cells. And these things go wild. So this is all, this is all very clear. Mm -hmm. uh, it's clear to me, and it's clear to a number of other people, but it's not known by the majority of, of people who work in the cancer field, despite all of the articles that say this. Yes, right. Right. Um, well, let's let's start talking about you know what you've been doing with regard to the solution of this, you know, aberrant metabolism in cancer. So, yeah. Well, I mean, now I, I've kind of outlined you know how we can explain the majority of observations associated mm -hmm. with um, with the origin and progression of the disease. So, so the logical approach then would be to um, transition all of the cells of our body away from any or, or reduce as much as possible the availability of fermentable fuels uh, to the tumor cells, which often means that we have to treat the whole body. So the whole body is then transitioned away from carbohydrate to ketones. So ketones are an alternative fuel to glucose. So then once we have the body transitioned away from, from glucose and to ketones, we now can start to hammer that glycolytic pathway in a much greater uh, intensity because you have to also realize that all the cells in our body use that same ancient pathway in the first part of our energy metabolism. Mm -hmm. Glucose is metabolized to pyruvate, and then the pyruvate is fully oxidized in the mitochondria to CO2 and water. So all of our cells use that first part of the pathway. But most of the cells in our body can can shut that pathway down if they burn ketones, which directly enter the mitochondria and are metabolized uh, uh, for energy. So the first step in cancer management is to, is to transition the body away from fermentable fuels of uh, glucose to the ketone, and that will put uh, tremendous pressure on the tumor cells because they, as I mentioned, they use a lot of glucose and they can't, they can't respire effectively. So already you're putting some pressure. But then there's other tumor cells where they use glutamine uh, to a very, and especially the immune cells, macrophages, yes. neutrophils, they are glutamine hogs. Right. So when you have burn patients, 
you, you, you supplement the burn patient with massive amounts of glutamine, which is going to assist the energy of our good macrophages to kill bacteria, okay? But the tumor cells are also using this glutamine. So again, you have to be very careful on how you target the glutamine while yes. at the same time choking off the glucose. So this is, a, this is a, a strategy that we need to understand, and we need to know how we, how we, how we uh, produce this um, sequential uh, targeting of fermentable fuels without, at the same time, harming the normal cells of the body. So it becomes a fine-tuning, a tweaking of systems, uh, of, of uh, respiratory and fermentable systems that enhance the health and vitality of normal cells while putting more and more pressure. And we use hyperbaric oxygen mm -hmm. as an alternative to radiation because now we can up the, the reactive oxygen in the tumor cells to a higher level yep. while reducing them in normal cells, therefore forcing the tumor cells into a, into a um, apoptotic cell death through, through reactive oxygen species. So many of the things that we're doing are what the traditional standards of care do, but we can do it without toxicity and we can do it while maintaining the high health of the patient and ending up with, a, with an end result that we think will be better. Right. Let me, I just want to circle back to hyperbaric. And you're, so obviously in the, we'll talk about the, the specifics of the diet, but you're putting, you know, people are in ketosis and um, there's a limited protein intake. We're avoiding glutamine. And I, I appreciate that explanation just based on the fact that I know there's always much dialogue in my community around using glutamine in cancer patients, and you would say that's directly contraindicated. So thank you for that. Not, well, not always. Oh. Not always. It would only, only for those cancer cells that would use um, uh, glutamine, which, which is the majority of metastatic cancers. Okay. So for, for those incipient tumors that are primarily dependent on, on glucose, you know, you might not need to, 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 to restrict glutamine. Okay. It, 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 again, it depends. But metastatic cancer, uh, in my view, uh, coming from an immune cell that, use, that is programmed to use a lot of glutamine, it might not be in the best interest to, to use glutamine. Um, uh, maybe low doses, uh, but not certainly not high doses, and we're exploring this right now. So oh, you are? Okay. The, the, the chapter is not complete. Good. All right. Well, we'll definitely stay tuned. But so then you're increasing reactive oxygen species in the tumor through, um, in the tumor cells through uh, uh, hyperbaric oxygen, and you're withholding their ability to synthesize glutathione by keeping glutamine down, correct? And this is the glutamine mechanism. Glutamine and glucose. Okay. Because glucose, the, the pentose pathway will, will provide NADPH. Uh, which is a reducing agent for yeah. uh, for glutathione synthesis. So, so glutamine will produce will be metabolized to glutamate. Uh, uh, glutamate is a uh, a major uh, component of uh, of glutathione, and a lot of glutathione is synthesized uh, indirectly from glutamine. Mm -hmm. So you're reducing the antioxidant capacity uh, of the tumor cell, which is already producing more react. So they're on the threshold of death anyway. These tumor cells, they're not tough. And they're not hardy, and they're not fit. They only appear that way because we create, right. through the tactic treatments, we create the most perfect environment that allow these cells to thrive. So um, uh, it's, just, it's just upside down what we're doing to try to treat cancer patients. Mm -hmm. So we're providing the fuels that keep these cells alive. So it's not like the tumor cells are fit. We're just never targeting what they, what they, what, 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 what's keeping them alive. You know, it's, it's, so... Uh, um, so, yeah, so I, I think that, you know, once you understand how these cells are surviving, um, then it becomes uh, a logical path to, uh, 
to, to remove their fuels and, 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 and make them vulnerable to, react, to reactive oxygen species. Yeah, got it. Now, calorie restriction, um, is that necessary always for the therapeutic action of the ketogenic diet? Well, you know, um, it, it, in my view it is mm -hmm. um, because it'll lower. Here's what calorie restriction does. It lowers blood sugar, okay? That's guaranteed. Um, it also elevates blood ketones to a much higher level than an unrestricted ketogenic diet. Yes. So if the ketones uh, are, are an alternative fuel, and you want to get as much of this alternative fuel into the normal cells as possible, and at the same time you want to flood the tumor cell with a, with a fuel that it really can't use well, the best is to get those ketones as high as you possibly can. Right. Now the problem is you're never going to get into ketoacidosis, which is a pathological condition. Mm -hmm. For those of us, for, the, for people who don't have type 1 diabetes, or even type 2 diet, you're not going to get into ketoacidosis. So, so if you, the higher you can get your ketones, they'll, they'll only go up to 7 or 8 millimolar, which is pretty high in a, in, a, but in a person, but it's not up in the ketoacidotic range, which is 15 to 20 millimolar. Mm -hmm. So you're well below that. You're, in, you're still in the normal physiological ranges. So calorie restriction will allow the ketones to become, become elevated. So, and, and, and consequently, the therapeutic benefit of the ketogenic diet uh, restricted will be better than if people eat a lot of fat. And as a matter of fact, if you eat too much of this, that you can get uh, dyslipidemia, insulin insensitivity, high blood sugar, and actually make the damn tumor cells grow faster. So the ketogenic diet is a medical fuel. It's a medical therapy that should have the same respect as any uh, chemotherapy would. You would never treat somebody with uh, uh, cisplatin at a dose that would be lethal to the patient. So right. you, you want to just respect the ketogenic diet just as much as you would expect radiation and any, and any, any other type of, uh, of, of therapy for cancer. So, and again, there's a lot of misconception about ketogenic diets and tumors. It's not a cure, it's just one part of the solution yep. uh, to manage the disease. And it has to be done correctly, otherwise it'll backfire on you and make the situation worse. Mm -hmm. um, Duration of the ketogenic diet, I mean, that obviously depends, but any comments there? I think it depends on the patient and their, you know, their particular well, right treatment. Well, yeah, right now, unfortunately, um, we're, you know, there are some people out there that have been using it for, for more than a year, two years, um, and, and doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, they're still alive, yep. uh, this kind of thing. And, you know, this turns a lot of people off because, because you say, oh, my God, I, for the rest of my life I've got to do this diet. Now, the, the, the issue here, of course, is that... Um, our strategy for managing cancer uh, will use a cocktail of drugs and procedures and diets that will all work together synergistically to resolve the disease. And when you use the diet together with the hyperbaric oxygen and these various what we like to term dirty drugs, uh, dirty drugs are great because they can target multiple different pathways simultaneously. And, you know, we'll look into some of these kinds of things. And um, we want this disease to be resolved in the same period of time that the standards of care are being used. Uh, and so we're not talking about putting people on ketogenic diets for years. Yes. We're only doing that now because we haven't, pulled, we haven't put the whole, the, the whole package together yet. We had, once we get the whole package together, this whole cocktail therapy, um, we're going we're gonna to make cancer manageable the same way they made AIDS manageable. Right. We use a cocktail of different inhibitors, of, of protease inhibitors, 
and you know you, you, you drop the death you drop the death rate by by a massive number. Mm-hmm. Now we're not saying we're going to cure that. All we can say is that we think we can keep people alive at a healthier state for a far longer period of time, and we don't want people to have to be on ketogenic diets for the rest of their life. I mean, it's just one part. Nor would we want a person who says, oh, I'm, I've taken radiation, and it looks like my tumor is gone. Well, we, want to, we don't want to be radiating these people, you know, for the rest of their lives just right. to make sure that they don't get this. You know, everything is, is to, how, can we, how can we accomplish the mission over the shortest period of time and guarantee, and guarantee a longer resolution of the disease with a higher quality of life? That, I mean, that's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it is de- definitely achievable. It is definitely achievable. What are some of the other interventions that you're thinking about? Is there anything that 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 you're you can you, you can talk well, about we now? Well, we have a variety. Yeah, yeah, well, there's a variety besides the ketogenic diet. There's a variety of, of drugs um, that will also target uh, the glycolytic pathway. There's three bromopyruvate. Okay. Um, right. There's the the oxyglucoses. You know, you have a lot of different things that by themselves won't work. Um, won't work. You know, effectively, but for a few people, of course, like. But, you know, and then there's certain, you know, glutamine inhibitors and this kind of thing um, that we're looking into. You have to be very careful yes. because uh, glutamine is a, uh, is a very uh, important uh, glutaminolysis. The use of glutamine in our body mm-hmm. is involved in so many different um, rea- uh, p- pathways like urea cycles and, and the formation of a lot of amino acids for tissue and protein synthesis. So you really have to be, you really have to be careful on how you, on how you use this strategy. Uh, for managing for managing the disease, and that's part of the uh, that's part of the excitement in in how we're going to be able to put together uh, the full the full uh, approach, uh, and that's where the research is. I mean, none of, we don't need anything more. All all we have to do is get the, is get the right scheduling down yes. and the right dosages and the right timings. Right. All right. I mean, this is not we're spending billions and billions of dollars on things that won't work. Uh, in the long term, and they make people sick, and they cost a fortune. This is this this we can manage this disease without costing a fortune and without making people sick. I mean, I am absolutely convinced of this. But but very few people are doing this. I mean, it's just like everybody thinks, oh, this is a genetic disease. It's infinitely complicated. Oh, it's going to take us years. And that's only because you're focusing on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Right. What you know, um, we I was. I, I was talking to Eugene Fine recently, who's doing some, he's, you know, they're looking at, at um, PET scans and so forth and, you know, the different tumors and what fuels they're relying on. And he, he's com- commented that he thought some tumors can actually move into relying on ketones. Is that anything that you've seen? Well, um, when we have to look at when we say relying on ketones, mm-hmm. um, can tumors uh, oxidize ketones? Yeah, probably. Do they get energy from it? Not likely, because in order to get energy, you have to assume that the, the mitochondria, that tumor cell, has to be normal. And right. no tumor cell has normal mitochondria. So, so you have to then, you know, I have to admit that the slowest growing tumors, the mitochondrial, the oxidative capacity, the respiratory capacity, is intact uh, okay. uh, to some degree in the slowest indolent kinds of tumors. That's, that's, that's the case. Because you can see in the most aggressive tumors, they, they don't even have mitochondria. You can look at EM examples, and they have very few mitochondria, and the ones that are there are all dysmorphic. So you know these guys have to be using a massive amount of fermentable fuels. But it is true that some of the slowest-growing tumors do have some level of mitochondrial function. But again, 
it's not completely normal. Yes. So, you know, can they burn? They can probably stumble along a little bit on ketone, but no aggressive tumor is going to be able to use ketone because they don't have the mitochondria to use it. Right. Okay? Right. I mean, it's just, it's just that you look under the electron microscope and you see that, look at the EM of, of, of mitochondria and aggressive tumors. I mean, they're, they have crystallosis. They're all dysmorphic. Mm-hmm. You know they can't use. They've they got to be fermenting. They can't be yes. respiring. Yes. So, yes. Um, so, I mean, there may be some, but, but they still are going to have to rely more on fermentable fuels than respiratory fuels. Okay. So, again, how you schedule and at, at, the, dense, at, the, at the scheduling of, to eliminate these tumor cells goes through a process. And, you know, if you can, if you can bring these tumor cells down into a single site and in an indolent state, you know, they can be excised uh, by a surgeon and cure. The disease can be cured. So, um, again, surgery is also a component mm-hmm. uh, for curing cancer. And we know that surgeons can cure cancer as long as it hasn't metastasized. So, um, uh, you know, so we want to bring these more aggressive tumors down into a less aggressive indolent state where surgery could then have a bigger role. And then, of course, the metastatic cells, uh, we would have to eliminate them uh, through a scheduled uh, targeting of their fermentable fuels. So everything has Got a it. plan, uh, just that it hasn't been fleshed out completely yet. Right, right, right. Well, just I so appreciate you and your team's work in this area. Um, and, you know, the mitochondrial enhancement therapy specifically, is that what you've been talking about with regard to the schedule and the various interventions? Or Well, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are talking about, uh, well, mitochondrial enhancement therapy is, be- is best for prevention of cancer. Uh-huh. Because if cancer is a mitochondrial metabolic disease, yes. and you keep your mitochondria in the highest level of efficient function, yes. then, the, then the risk of getting cancer is going to be massively reduced. So mitochondrial, like what, therapeutic fasting, mm-hmm. okay, somebody goes on a, on a water-only therapeutic fast for seven days, this is a form of mitochondrial enhancement because, because now you're going to be burning a lot of ketones. And when the normal mitochondria burn ketones, they actually reduce the, the production of reactive oxygen species. And some of the cells that have uh, partially uh, a mitochondria that are not up to full, full uh, energetic utility, some of these mitochondria will be, will be uh, digested through an autophagy mechanism. Yeah, self, right. It's called the self-digestion. Mm-hmm. And their products will be recycled, and you will reconfigure new healthy mitochondria in cells where they had, like, say, wear and tear mitochondria. They're, mm-hmm. they're eliminated. And you then repopulate your cell with a, with a healthy mitochondria. And this happens under therapeutic fasting. And therapeutic fasting has been known to, to uh, resolve a number of different kinds of cancers if you can do it long enough. And, but it's a very hard thing to do. I mean, most people can't stop eating uh, or drinking only water for, for 7 to 14 days. I mean, this is not a common practice, but it yes. does work for those who can do it. Then there's another group of people who think that if, well, maybe not all the mitochondria in a tumor cell are completely dysfunctional, and maybe it's possible to uh, re- uh, restore the mitochondria in in these early neoplastic cells and return them to a normal state, and then they become uh, growth-regulated and join, and join in the society of cells. And, you know, that, that's an interesting concept. Um, you know, I'm not too in, in, in favor of trying to re-educate cells. I'm mm-hmm. more in favor of, of eliminating them uh, so that we never have to worry about them uh, again. So, um, but, you know, that's certainly a possibility. And, of course, we know with mitochondrial trans- transfer therapy, which has been done mostly in vitro, not in yes. vivo, uh, you, can, you can revert completely a, a tumorigenic phenotype to a normal phenotype if you, if you remove the abnormal mitochondria and put in fresh new mitochondria. Right. Even, the, even, though the nucle- even though the nucleus may 
they persist with all the mutations, the cell's not not neoplastic any longer. Yeah, I just so want to. kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Interesting. Oh. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to say to the listeners that I know I was I I really appreciate your your 2015 paper actually July cancer is a metabolic disease in um, frontiers in cell and developmental biology folks and this paper is a uh, free full text and we'll put a link on the website for you and you can specifically read and and look at some of the research around that um, you know just returning uh, abnormal nuclei to, you know introducing abnormal nuclei into into uh, normal cells and having having, well, then having the cell be normal, actually. So demonstrating that the nuclei, the damaged nuclei, actually have no impact. Other, other, than, other than controlling the development. See, um, all those mutations in the nucleus, uh, of course, in a, in, a, in a cancer cell, people are focusing on that. But, but then when you put that nucleus into a new cytoplasm, you don't yes. get the dysregulated cell growth. However, the organism develops with that tumor nucleus only up to a certain uh, developmental stage, and then it aborts. Um, because the mutations in that nucleus, the genes that are mutated, are actually required. The products of those genes are required for the continual mm -hmm. normal development of the cell. It's like anything, and all of a sudden, the, okay, stage two in the development, stage three in the development, we need the product from that gene, and that gene is mutated, and the, therefore, we don't get the product. Therefore, the whole system implodes on itself. So, so the mutations are really controlling the developmental epochs, but they're not causing the dysregulation of the growth. The dysregulation of the growth is coming from the fact that the mitochondria, which actually control the growth of the cell, those cells are no, are, are that organelle is dysfunctional. So these cells are fermenting and growing out of control. So it's not, it's not related to the, the mutations in the nucleus. It's very, it's very interesting. It's really and interesting. When you begin to put, when, when you get, when you get in, into putting all this stuff together and understanding how all the parts of the puzzle fit, you have to scratch your say, head and say, what the hell have we been doing for all these 50 years? It's like insane. Mm -hmm. what we've been doing in this cancer field. I mean, this is a, a manageable disease. Uh, we can live with it. We can manage it. I think we can even resolve it for the majority of people. And, and we're, just, we're just doing everything upside down in the, in, the, in the wrong way. I don't know how long it's going to take for people to come to know this. But once they do, we're going to have progress. Right, right, right. Well, it seems like more, it, it does seem like there are more people looking along these lines, more scientists researching along these lines. Would you say that that's true? Have you, have you noticed some movement towards answering these oh, questions yeah, with you? Oh, yeah, there's no, there's no question about it. But you, you, you often see, uh, the, of, those, of those guys who are locked into the gene theory, their, their argument is, is that the abnormal uh, uh, gene mutations are controlling the dysregulated metabolism. Okay, mm -hmm. so so again, uh, the gene theory is dominant because the abnormal metabolism is the result of the gene mutations, not the reverse. So this preserves the dogma and keeps everybody focusing on the gene mutations. So so you have to say, you know, these oncogenes—they're just upregulation of cells that drive fermentation pathways. And when you put new mitochondria there, the oncogenes turn off. Mm. So 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 the, the whole argument is that no. This is a mitochondrial metabolic, a type of mitochondrial metabolic disease. And if you want to resolve the disease, you must understand that. Mm -hmm. Don't beat around the bush wasting millions of dollars studying signaling pathways and trying to figure out all of this kind of stuff when you, all you need to do is take away the fermentable fuels. 
Right. Okay? So that is a much more achievable mission than trying to understand how gene mutations are controlling a thousand different signaling pathways. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Do you want to study and putz around with the disease for the next hundred years, or do you want to resolve the disease? It's a very simple question. Right. All right? So... You know, people will publish all these papers in Science and Nature. Oh, look at this pathway. Look at that pathway. Watch the way this mutation controls that. You know, this is academically exciting and very interesting, but it's not going to help the guy dying in the clinic. Yes, right. You want something that's going to help that person who's suffering from the disease now, not 100 years from now. And we can do that. And if, you, if you focus on, on, the, on the mission is to, is, to, is to manage and get rid of these tumor cells while not harming the rest of the body, and we can do that. Now, um, you were working with exogenous ketones. Um, are you still doing that? Are you, are, are you guys still well, working with that the, therapy? Well, yeah, the exogenous ketones um, uh, could, be, could be part of the cocktail mm -hmm. that will eventually be used for the resolution of, of the disease. The problem is, of course, is getting these ketones in sufficient quantities right. to have a therapeutic benefit. And the ketone that needs to be used is D-beta-hydroxybutyrate. Not the, not the racemic DL mixture, but the D-form. And the D-form is very difficult to synthesize. Wow. And, and uh, Richard Veach at the NIH has a patent for synthesis, but it's very hard. It's just, it, it, it requires a lot of work uh, to, uh, to actually make uh, D-beta-hydroxybutyrate. It's a, it's a sophisticated biochemical reaction. Now, when people go use ketogenic diets and do therapeutic fasting, our liver predominantly makes the D-beta-hydroxybutyrate. So we make that drug naturally through, through our own biochemistry. We make that, that metabolite naturally as a, as a breakdown product of fat, so our liver can do this. But to synthesize it um, as a chemical in the lab to make a drug from D-beta, it's not that easy. Uh, but that's the kind of ketone supplementation you would need uh, to... Uh, uh, to prevent the tumor cells from using it effectively and also to raise levels high enough to keep our normal cells healthy. So, yes, but it's part of the strategy. We plan to use that. We plan to build cocktails with this to, to determine the, 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 how, how effective that is when we add it to the cocktail mixture. Okay, good. All right, well, we'll stay tuned for that as well. Now, so cancer, I'm, I, so cancer is preventable, would you say not? Oh, absolutely. And you know, cancer is... a probably one of the most preventable diseases. Uh, in theory, it's very preventable, but in practice, it's extremely difficult to prevent. Mm -hmm. So um, why? Because the environment that we live in, yes. in a technological Western society, uh, produces uh, an environment that contributes to the disease. And a lot of that has to do with diet and nutrition. Right. We eat huge amounts of nutritionally deplete foods that are very high in carbohydrates, that create systemic inflammation in our bodies and, go, and harm the, the, the respiratory systems of our cells. Yes. So we are exposed to chemicals, foods, a whole variety of different things right. that, put our, that damage our respiration and put us at risk for cancer. So, you know, how many people are going to do therapeutic fasting and then when they eat, they eat only the purest of organic foods? And, you know, carbohydrates are fine. Carbohydrates don't cause cancer. Um, like many people say, oh, sugar causes cancer. No, sugar doesn't cause cancer. Sugar will lead to an inflammatory condition, and the inflammatory condition can put you at risk for cancer by leading to dyslipidemia and, and type 2 diabetes and a variety of the other things. And if you have cancer, the sugar will certainly facilitate its growth. 
but sugar is not considered a carcinogen. So, but the idea of complex carbohydrates that are broken down slowly, these non-glycemic carbohydrates, these are fine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people, people can transition, and a lot of people are doing this. They're, they're going to these organic farms. They're getting all this organic meat. Um, you know, meat doesn't cause cancer, uh, but it can certainly provoke it if it's all full of chemicals and hormones and this right. kind of thing. Right, right. So uh, genetically modified foods can put you at risk for, for increasing damage to the respiration. So we're in a, an environment that creates a situation that puts us ourselves at risk for cancer. But, you know, if you want to prevent cancer, you'd have to, you know, uh, replace a lot of the things that we would normally find ourselves eating with other things. Mm -hmm. And then your risk for cancer would go way down. So, um, I mean, all you have to do is look at the animals in their natural state. For example, the wolf. The wolf eats, you know, uh, meat, all right? It's It's a meat eater predominantly, and they, they um, in the wild, wolves don't get cancer. Cancer is extremely rare. But the dog, the dog was bred from the wolf. Uh, the dog is full of cancer. Uh, you know, dog, cancer in dogs is very, very high. What are they eating? They're eating Purina uh, dog right. chow, mm-hmm. full, of, full of carbohydrates, unnatural things that these dogs are eating. All the, a lot of these chows have all kinds of grains in them. Dog did not eat, evolve to eat grain. When was the last time you saw a wolf going through a cornfield gnawing on a, co- a corn on the cob? You don't right. see this. All right? But we feed the dogs this kind of stuff, and then they're all full of cancer, and we're wondering why. And then, and then we're treating them with the same toxic chemicals we treat humans. Dogs get sick. It costs them a fortune. So we're seeing that when we put dogs on natural uh, organic foods and calorie-restricted ketogenic diets, these tumors uh, disappear. And we don't even need drugs most of the time. So clearly, this is a very preventable disease. It's just the environment we put ourselves in creates this incredible risk for cancer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, based on what you're, you're doing, you're actually, we're actually seeing some nice reverses. Um, so I'm, in my practice, I'm prescribing the calorie-restricted ketogenic diet for cancer patients and, you know, for some other inflammatory conditions. And I know that, um, Tom... You know, I really took this on and evolved. You know, I have a good nutrition team now, and they've become versed in doing that. And people find me over at your site. Um, but I know that you're, many patients reach out to you, and there's also a lot of clinicians uh, interested in really understanding this and getting training around how to implement it. Um, where, where are you referring patients these days? And, and for the clinician who wants to kind of move into using these therapies, um, the diet, maybe hyperbaric oxygen. Um, what are you advising? Yeah, well, this is a, a, a difficult situation because there are nutritionists uh, like yourself, a lot of NDs, uh, naturopathic physicians, whose practices seem to be more in line uh, with these kinds of approaches. Uh, they seem to be far more open to this. Not, and there's a lot of MDs that are too. There, yeah. There's a lot of more people that are becoming uh, aware uh, of this. And, you know, one of the things that one of the things that uh, physicians now need to know, and I think NDs have always been into a lot of blood work. They like to look at a lot of blood. Uh, generally, sometimes <laughs> more more than the guys down at the major hospitals. Look yeah, at the yeah, blood work. that's right. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We're seeing we're seeing certain things now. Uh, we're we're beginning to see uh, elevation in vitamin D in these cancer uh, using ketogenic diet restricted ketogenic diets. And as I said, you know, the glucose ketone index uh, calculator that we published in yes. Nutrition and Metabolism, the physicians need to use more information from their patients' blood work to keep them on track for the kinds of therapies that we think will be effective. 
So you, you want to keep triglyceride levels low. You want your HDLs and LDLs to be at approximately the same ratio, which is really good. So your HDL and LDL ratio are about the same. And you want, you want the blood work to look pristine, that you would consider, wow, this is the blood work that I see for a really healthy person, okay? So, and then you use the biomarkers of blood ketone, blood glucose monitoring with the blood work monitoring, and then, and then using that information, at least we're keeping the patients uh, recognizably healthy. Now, while we begin to treat them, we're going to use drugs and hyperbaric oxygen and various approaches that will maintain a healthy blood work and keep a high uh, state of health in the, in, in the patient themselves. So we don't want people's hair to fall out. This is mm-hmm. absurd. Mm-hmm. Anytime you see a cancer patient who, who, who's lost hair, that person has been uh, mistreated. The person treating that patient has no clue as, as what they're doing. The hair for a patient should not fall out. All right, that's a, that's a clear sign that this, somebody, somebody doesn't know what they're doing when they're treating this person. Yeah. So, wow. so, you know, the, the, so you need to have uh, match these blood work because then you can see how we, when we add on the cocktail drugs and therapies, hyperbaric oxygen can be very healthy when, when the patient is in a state of therapeutic ketosis, but can be very dangerous if that patient isn't. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, there are hyperbaric oxygen centers that are now being set up where patients are put into therapeutic ketosis and then placed into the hyperbaric chambers, and then with, together with certain drugs that work against glycolysis and glutaminolysis, this package could be extremely therapeutic without harming the patient and causing the maximum destruction of the tumor cells while enhancing the health and vitality. So MDs, MDs need to know the strategy. Now, I have to be honest with you. We're still working this out. Yes. Okay? And funds for this kind of research are so limited. Right. Okay? It's very hard to get money to do these kinds of research because it's not considered by the academic industry to be sexy stuff. Right. This is not sexy science. This is practical science. Science is actually going to work and have a, have a, have a, a direct effect, but it doesn't t- uh, talk about some esoteric signaling cascade, so which is, which is what seemed, the NIH seems to get really excited about, are these esoteric signaling cascades. So, mm-hmm. so you know, getting funds to put these cocktails together and then, and, then, and then establishing a preclinical system. What we do is we, we, we vet everything in a preclinical model system, making sure that the, that the cancers are resolved without harming the mouse. And then, we, then that can be immediately translated to the, to the, to the, to the, patient, to the physicians who, who apply that same, that same strategy to their patients. And, again, each patient's going to differ a little bit. You know, he may, he may respond better to one combination of the cocktail where, the, where another patient may respond better to the different combination. And it's a learning process on the part of all of us, right. the basic scientists as well as the, as well as the physicians as well as the patients. It's a team effort that will be used together to, to strategize the management of cancer. And, and, this, and then once we have a better understanding, we'll be able to streamline all this to make it much more efficient for each person. But we're not there yet. We're at the, this is just the cutting edge. We are at the beginning of a new phase of how we're going to deal with this disease. And just requires, um, first of all, it requires an understanding. And then second of all, how do we put it into practice? And that's where we are right now. And, and you guys are the ones putting it into practice. Yeah, yeah. There are many of us, you know, really looking at it and prescribing it and paying attention to outcome and and it's you know it's been yeah. it's been mixed some people are able to jump in and and follow it and get into you know pretty aggressive good ketosis numbers quickly you know and see their index 
um, at an appropriate level, and other other patients really struggle. It seems it, it, it and it really has a lot to yeah, do. Yeah, the other thing, the other thing, Kara, I want to I want to mention is stress management. Yeah, uh, we have we have uh, in these now. There's new. Uh, I can't tell you how important it is for stress management, because many cancer patients have anxiety. And, and uh, the anxiety leads to elevated glucose, and, and, and what happens right. is that this is counterproductive to managing cancer. Right. Stress management becomes part of the, of the solution to this problem. You've got to have these patients in a stress, as low a stress as possible right. because that's when the metabolic therapies uh, will work best. Right. So uh, massage therapy is very important, I think, uh, to, and it makes uh, hyperbaric oxygen with, with therapeutic ketosis uh, all together, working better, and then we haven't even begun to. When you guys begin to treat your patients, you have to use the correct drugs, not toxic drugs. You need to use drugs that are going to work together uh, synergistically with the metabolic therapy. Yes. So uh, avoiding toxicity is a key component of effective disease management, and you, and so many of these toxic chemicals, these platinum drugs, and these other toxic things, toxic radiation is not part of the solution, all right, despite what people think. It's not going to be the part of On the other hand, there will be patients who simply cannot take charge of their own destiny, yes. and, and they don't want to be involved in any part of this. So therefore, the current toxic standards of care will always be needed for that population of patients who do not choose to take part in their own health management. Okay. Well, how, so we're always going to need toxic drugs and radiation to take care of that population of patients. Well, and there are plenty of patients who come to me who want me to co-manage them. So they are on the yeah. toxic protocols, and we're still you well, know, doing see, our best. That's, a, that, that's another thing. We don't know because, you know, a lot of these toxic chemicals, they also dovetail them with steroids and this kind of thing. Yes. And uh, to give them an appetite. Why are they losing their appetite? I mean, all of these different kinds of things... Uh, are counterproductive to the management of cancer without toxicity. So, so they think, oh, I'm going to use a ketogenic diet together with some, some toxic drug. You know, it might be okay. Um, I'm not going to say it's not. I just think that, you know, why don't we, why don't we marry the, the, the ketogenic diet with the kind of drug that's not going to be toxic? And then they say, where's the clinical trials on this? Well, who's going to support the clinical trials if you're not interested in that strategy in the first place? So, so um, it's it's going to be a learning. Uh, it's going to be a steep learning curve here for this, and and yeah. uh, but it'll happen. It's going to happen because we can't continue to do what we're doing. Absolutely. It doesn't work. Right. So, um, you know, and uh, and I and I also want to acknowledge the uh, Travis Christofferson's foundation, the Single Cause Single Cure yes. Foundation, which is the few private foundations that are actually interested in funding and supporting. Uh, metabolic therapy for cancer. Um, they're not interested in these toxic drugs and these immunotherapies and this kind of stuff. They're interested in how can you manage cancer, just like I'm saying, non-toxically using a, a, a cocktail of drugs and procedures that all work synergistically together to manage the disease without harming the patient. You know, I think this is the strategy. People should be excited about this to know that we actually can do this. Mm -hmm. The problem is that, that, that most of the funding and most of the, uh, the, the discussion is at a totally, in a totally different sphere. And, um, and I think people have to come to know this. I think patients, more, as you're right, more and more people hear about metabolic therapy. They come to their physicians and say, hey, I, I'm, I'd like you to tell me about metabolic therapy. They don't know because don't forget the patient is the ultimate consumer. You know, they are the ultimate consumer of the therapies that will be delivered. 
and they have to have some knowledge base, and they'll begin to hear about it through through the success of some people who are doing these things. Right, and it's getting, it's definitely traveling. Um, folks, I will have the website URL for Single Causes, Single Cure, um, and as well as uh, Dr. Seyfried's contact information, uh, his email address with this podcast. Um, I, I feel like this is just a beginning of a very, very long conversation, and I, you know, we're we're already over an hour, and there's so much more to be talked about, Tom. Um, but thank you for joining me today. And and I, you know, I, I I know our paths will continue to cross. And you know, when when we're ready for the next level of discussion or new stuff to report, I'd love to um, have you on the podcast again, so we can you know just keep clinicians in the loop. Those of, you know, those yeah, out there who you. are interested. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for your work. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was nice talking to you again, Kara, and uh, I'll sign off now. Okay. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.